then there are stories to not share about your life on a first date. (laughs) You weren't expecting me to go there, were you? Hi, I work out. After I work out, I eat a can of tuna. But don't worry. No, no, not tuna. Trent, stick to your notes. Can of sardines. (laughs) But don't worry. I eat that can of sardines over a garbage so I can throw out the can right away so that the smell goes away quickly. Actually, I, I, I eat them while I'm also just having a normal lunch. But don't worry, I eat those over a garbage can too. So now you're picturing, <laughs> that's so ridiculous, why'd I start with that? Now you're picturing, you know, next time someone's like over a garbage can, you're thinking, that guy just maybe worked out. That's what's gonna go through your mind, no? Probably not. (laughs) Um, There are stories to share about your kids on Facebook, and then there's stories not to share. Have compassion, parents. This is not just your platform for you to enjoy communicating whatever you wish. They will become teenagers. They will despise you for the information you post online. Um, There are workplace stories that you highlight in your resume, And then there are stories, blunders, failures that you strategically bury. Why why do we filter our lives? Well, we'd like to put our best foot forward. We like to manage our image. We like to, uh, not that we don't want things to be complicated. We want it to be all put together. And if they knew the whole story, well, what would they think? What would we do? Now, of course, there's being on the other side of that filter, right? You're sitting across from someone, you're thinking, just tell me everything. Like, I'm missing something. What are the facts? What are you not telling me, right? If I could maybe see them from a different angle, uh, maybe I would have a new perspective of who they are too. Am I about to preach from Ananias and Sapphira? (laughs) Really? (laughs) Um, of all the passage, of all, of all the stories in the, in the book of Acts, I'm, I'm here, this is what I'm doing, how is this helpful? Um, I have skipped over this passage in my life many times. It just didn't make sense. It, would, it, would, it occurs in the middle of miracles and healings and all of these beautiful, profound things, and there's joy, and then all of a sudden we have this, this story in the middle of Acts, But I felt God nudge me and say, Trent, don't avoid me in this story. Don't look the other way. Meet me in this too. Now, I think many of you might be like me in this, that we would prefer to avoid the hard parts, that we would prefer it to be safe and be kept nice, keep it clean, avoid the complicating, avoid the confusion, avoid all of these things. Let's keep our faith easy. Let's keep it approachable. And sometimes I forget that our job is to be a witness of the living king, Jesus the Messiah, not to maintain a whitewashed, sanitized, culturally gentle image of Jesus, the Jesus who plays with children but has no rebukes, has no challenges, has no invitation to change. We have this tendency to want to protect the Jesus brand even from Jesus. But Luke, out of all of the events that he could have chosen within the early church, 
chose to include this story. Every story, every line was written with purpose. And as he carefully constructed his account, he could have left out this story. But this story mattered. And if it matters, and we want to respect the author, we need to lean in. We can't ignore this story. But we won't just look at this story because we want to respect and honor the writer. But we also want to take a deep, hard look because if Jesus is who Luke claims him to be, we do not need to avoid the hard parts. We don't need to shy away from this hard thing. And as we lean closer, we can actually see that there is a message here that is really good news. So we're in the middle, we've just started a sermon series where we're going through the book of Acts, and we're going through the first half of Acts now, and then later on in the year, we're going to go through the second half. And this book is better understood as the Acts of Jesus, part two. It's a book about what Jesus continues to do and teach after his resurrection, a resurrection that has changed everything. So we start right at the very beginning, and this is just a brief recap. We start at the very beginning in this book with the ascension. This was last week. An event so astonishing, so outstanding, that after the disciples are just kind of left staring into the sky, and they needed a divine nudge to get them moving. They needed a little push to get them out of their awe-inspired stupor. And what was so fascinating about the ascension um, is that it was for both the Jews and the Gentiles to discover and realize that Jesus is the eternal, everlasting king, that he is sovereign over all. And this is exciting. And we see this taking place because of the conversation around the clouds, that Jesus is hid in the clouds, that he's taken up into heaven in the clouds and so God goes ahead, and we know this from the Old Testament. We see all of these pictures of the presence of God being in the cloud, right? We have the cloud where it's uh, in the pillar of cloud by day. The glory of the Lord is hovering over Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And then on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. There was the cloud that sat over the tabernacle, and it filled the temple. It filled it with smoke. So we have this beautiful picture. There are 19 references in the book of Exodus to this kind of presence of God being in a cloud. A further 16 times in the book of Numbers. Then we have the prophet Daniel speaking about it. And then we have instructions to Aaron about the tabernacle. This is interesting. In verse 16, verse 2, or yeah, 16, verse 2 of Leviticus, it says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come um, whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. God's holy presence breaking into our realm. And Jesus' ascension is yet another reminder to all people that he is wrapped up in the glory of God, that he, like the holy mountain, like the temple, occupies the very presence of God. So what could possibly be the good news in this mysterious, mysterious and terrifying event? This crazy, 
Holy Spirit double homicide kind of thing. <laughs> like, let's call for what it is. Like, it's, we, we want to skip past it. Um, but the early church, they didn't pack it in. They didn't quit after this event. That fear didn't stop them. In fact, it was quite the opposite. They continued to expand. How did this event contribute to the unstoppable gospel of Jesus? Well, like all uh, elements within scripture, context is key. It is so important. So we need to take a look at what, what happens before this event. What happens after this event? How does this fit into the larger story? And as we take a look at this, as we lead up to the event and what happens after it, when we consider the flow of the text, I believe that we might start seeing this story from a new angle, that we might see God from a different angle and from a new perspective too. And that's valuable. So, I'm just going to bring us up to speed because we started in verse 1 and then I just skipped a whole bunch of really great stories to then preach about this terrible story. So just so that we can get ourselves to this place, after the ascension, the disciples went back to the city, right? They joined together in prayer with the fellow believers and then they picked someone out of whom has been with them the whole time to say, okay, this person's going to replace Judas's spot on the 12. Then, on the day of Pentecost, when they were together in a house, it was suddenly filled with a rushing wind, wind along with fire. The fire splits into individual tongues of fire hovering over the heads of people. Hovering over the people. Luke is not done with his Old Testament connections. God's presence was in the cloud by night, or by day, but what was it in at night? A pillar of fire. God's glory came in a pillar of fire. It filled the tabernacle when he came to live among his people. This single pillar of fire has now split and has been divided and is being shared amongst the people. Dr. Tim Metke, or Tim Mackey, a writer and creative director for the Bible Project, he puts it this way. This is God's personal temple presence, God's spirit that was foretold by Israel's prophets. And now it's come to take up residence in the new temple of Jesus' body, that is, his people. We've become little mobile temples where God now dwells. That is a cool picture about who the church is, about who we who follow Jesus are. Little mobile temples. After this great event, Peter explains to the crowd that this is how it's always been. This has always been the plan of God for the Spirit of God to dwell among his people. And from there, we are given these beautiful pictures of God's people joyously connecting and sharing with everyone that there, no one was lacking. There was blessing on this group, on these mobile temples. It was glorious. It was shalom peace then and this is key 
In Acts 3, 1, it then moves from there, Peter and John head to the temple. They get to the temple, and what they get to, what they see before they've even arrived, is they've headed over, and they see a beggar. They see a beggar who is, he's a man who is lame from birth, and he's been carried to the temple gate. So he's not even in the temple. He's outside the temple at the gate called Beautiful. And there he begs all day long. And then the disciples see him come and they say, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. They heal him. And in great excitement, this man joins now with the disciples, jumping, leaping, skipping, and enters into the temple courts with Peter and John. It's this beautiful picture of a man who is broken. He is begging. He's poor. He's in need. He's outside the temple. He's now been restored, healed, brought back into community, and is able to come back into the temple. And then along with this, now Peter starts to preach. He starts to proclaim who this Jesus is, who this God really is, and people are now upset. The temple leaders are just spitting mad with what Peter and John are up to. But they can't deny that there's been this miracle. And so they have this back and forth. They have this, this long interaction of God being shown to the people through the preaching and teaching of John. They do that. All of this happens, and then they come back uh, to the people. They come back to the group of believers. And then it says this. Luke has the, has, says this in Acts 4, 31. It says this. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed to have any of their possessions uh, was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. From time to, for from time to time, those who owned land sold, or land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyrus, or Cyprus, um, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money uh, and put it at the apostles' feet. And this brings us up to today's story. But then right after this event, right after our story, what happens again? It says that there was a great fear that seized the whole church and all who had heard these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. They're back at Solomon's colonnade. That is exactly where that man who was once crippled is clinging to Peter, holding on to him. So he's gone to the temple had all this conflict, all this demonstration of God's goodness, goes back to the people of God, has this event, has this exchange, goes back to the temple and has another conflict with the, the rulers, the established leaders, the religious elite. There's, there's a picture being painted here by Luke that is easy for us to miss if we don't notice that it starts in the old temple moves 
to the early church, this new community of believers, then moves back to the temple. We have these two pictures of the temple and right dead center in the middle is we have this interaction. We have God's people demonstrating something important. This is a tale of two temples. The old temple where the powerful people are attempting to control the community, maintain barriers, exert their authority. But the temple was always supposed to be a place of healing, of restoration, of encounter, a place that brought peace. The temple was always meant to radiate the kingdom of God, to radiate God's blessing outward. And now we have that very thing happening among this newly formed, spirit-filled people of God being what the temple was always supposed to be, a place of worship, peace, fellowship, teaching from Jesus now, the fulfillment of the law, a place where heaven and earth were overlapping and the presence of God dwelt. It is a fantastic picture about who the church is called to be. But the church or the temple wasn't just about healing, was it? It was also and always will be about God's holiness. The powerful, divine nature of God. His otherness, his righteousness, his purity, his perfection. The glory of God is not just some weak, soft thing. If the miraculous power of God could do and did all that we see, it comes with the powerful holiness and righteousness of God as well. Every blemish was magnified in the early church. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel where there was the Ark of the Covenant? It was being brought back to Jerusalem. Now it was being brought back incorrectly. It was being towed wrong. And as it stumbled, as it started to wobble a little bit, one of the guards in all earnestness reaches out to like stop it from falling he touches the ark and he drops down dead and we're all like did that just happen it happened and then we have another story right where Aaron's sons uh, Nadab and Ad Abihu I should have thought about how to pronounce that earlier Abihu took um, took their censors so they were doing a work that they're supposed to do but they put a fire uh, in them and he added incense and then they offered it in an unauthorized way. So it was unauthorized fire before the Lord in the temple. So this is in the Old Testament. And then contrary to the commands of God, that's what happened. So the fire came out, right, of the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. It became common practice, actually, to tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest before he would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. They tied an ankle around his, or they tied a, a rope around his ankles because if he had somehow showed up into the temple, the Holy of Holies wrong, incorrectly, if he had done it not quite perfectly enough, it was very real, it was a very real possibility that he would drop down dead in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And then if you went in after him, you would drop down dead too. So they have a rope to pull out the corpse. It's kind of crazy. 
It's kind of hard for us to deal with when we think in our modern sensibilities, we're like, really? This is part of this story? It is. And then we even had in the Leviticus text that we read earlier, right? That you can't just choose when to go into the Holy of Holies, is what was said to Aaron. So to be the temple of God comes with provision, it comes with healing, wholeness, and miracles. It also comes with the unrelenting call to live honest, obedient, pure, trusting lives. If we want to see God's work done in glorious ways, we must also accept that holiness comes with it. This is a relationship with a living God. God's holiness is serious. And then in walks Ananias and Sapphira, pretending to be honest, good people before others and before God. A scheme to impress. Now, I have to make a note for everyone here. Um, It wasn't that they didn't give all. It wasn't, that wasn't the issue. It wasn't that, uh, that they didn't give enough. So you, you, you can rest assured, you don't have to give everything. The story isn't saying that. The story is saying um, that they intentionally were deceptive. That it wasn't that they didn't give enough, it's that they pretended to give more. They pretended to give it all. It was their image management, their pride, this lie, and it was like a poison in the well. And it, was a par- it would have been a parasite among the people of God. It defiled the holy temple, the new holy temple of God. And in this swift, dramatic, bizarre event, God rooted that out. Now, contrary to many people's opinions and beliefs about scripture, this type of justice is exceptionally rare in scripture. God is far, far, far more likely to let evil persist longer than we would prefer. But God is free, and God does as he desires, and does as he wills. This story is a recalibration. It's a call to don't be flippant with the gift of God's presence. This is a realignment that with power comes great responsibility. I went there. Um, That where the spirit of God is, is both freedom and holiness. In this story, and any other story that's difficult or complex in the Bible, I I can't help putting myself in Ananias' position. And I think like, God, would you do that to me? Like, Would that happen? Would that ever happen? And there's this like ability for me to like enter into that part of the story and get a little terrified. Now, while it does stand as a warning and a reminder, this is not the main focus, is not for us to put ourselves in their position. This is revealing God's deep care and nurture for his new born church, his, his baby community that's just starting, and they're just starting to figure out where to go and how to respond and how to be God's people. This is really good news. He cares this much about his church. He's like a fierce lioness protecting his young, and we are his precious. He cares about us. We are his precious bride. We are his dear children. God is actively invested in the health 
of his church. He cares about us enough to not let evil persist. And that is good news. This story is good news because what we see is that God is not safe, but he is good. God is not a vending machine where you get to put in all of the right prayers and then you get out a predictable outcome. The Holy Spirit is a person. It requires a relationship. It requires a back and forth. And the Spirit of God is not just at your beck and call to do whatever we want him to do. In the Chronicles of Narnia, when confronted with the idea of Aslan, the lion who is the picture of God, the picture of Jesus, Lucy asks, is, is he safe? Safe, says Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And then when the children encounter Aslan for the first time, they are overwhelmed. And C.S. Lewis writes, People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of his golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. And then they found that they couldn't look at him and went all trembly. And then at the end of the book, Mr. Beaver nicely sums it up. He'll be coming and going. One day you'll see him and another you won't. He doesn't like to be tied down. He'll often drop in. Only you mustn't press him. He's wild, you know. Not like a tame lion. God is not safe, but he is good. Many of us would like him to be cuddly, safe, Santa Claus with no personality, just pats on the back, and that's it. But he is a God whose love for creation demands that he doesn't just leave us where we're at. He loves us where we are, but he doesn't love us to stay there. He loves us forward. He pushes us onward. He leads us into Christ-likeness. And this surprising story of Ananias and Sapphira remind us of this truth. In a world which elevates safety to be the highest concern, the greatest modern gospel, safety, security, personal freedom, the gospel the good news of God's kingdom challenges these notions by reminding the world that God is not safe, but he is good. And that is important. He is fierce in his goodness. And his spirit, the Holy Spirit, will continue to push us forward. He will continue to nudge you to come out of hiding. He will convict you to relinquish control of your image that you're trying to maintain. He will call you forward into a life of integrity and honesty. I am so thankful that we serve a God, serve a God who makes it crystal clear 
We must reject lies. We must renounce the pretense and the pride and the performance. To be in relationship with God and others requires honesty. Relationships, and we know this, can't exist in the presence of lies. How many of you would say that if you think of the most important sustainable relationships in your life, you would picture them with radical honesty? It would be impossible in any other way. Why did Ananias and Sapphira choose deception? We will never know. Why did God choose to reveal his holiness and his justice in this way at this time? We don't quite know. All we know is that this event happens right in the middle of Luke, painting a picture of the old temple, the old temple, and the new temple. A new temple that is filled with mercy, justice, power, healing, resurrection, all of that, and holiness. We can't have one without the other. We can't go after God in all of his goodness and all of his glory and ignore what he's also saying about the broken, the lies, the dishonesty. So how did this event contribute to the unstoppable gospel of Jesus? Well, the people left grasping a deeper perspective that they truly were the dwelling of God, the tabernacle of God. They've got the full picture of what this means, the healing and the holiness. The people left seeing that their God continues, continues to be the same yesterday, today, and always. That he was and always will be holy and will require that of his people. And then number three, the people left seeing a God who cares enough about their community. We can't miss this. Cares enough about his community to fight for them against deception. So where does that leave us today? What can we take from this? We are the new temple. We are called to bring peace and healing and we are called to be holy. I would encourage you, surrender your lies, half-truths, surrender the image management, let that all go, and trust Jesus with your lives. Let there be no deception in your heart. Go to him with gen genuine transparency, trusting that God is good. He might not be safe, but he's good. And if that honesty means going making amends to someone, making it right, then go and do that, knowing that the Lord will empower you. Another thing that we can leave with today is that the church will flourish as we continue to treat the Holy Spirit as a friend, partner, and person. We can trust him to guide and correct. And I know sometimes it's hard for us to picture the Holy Spirit as a person, as someone you would sit across the table from and have a conversation. But try. Make that effort to treat him as someone you would have a conversation with. He's not a divine mending, vending machine. He is predictably good. He's just not predictable. And then finally, we have the table in front of us. 
and that we can approach this table with reverence and the grace that came with it. There is a price that was paid, a great price, and that cost was great. Um, and without the price paid, all of our stories would be Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira's stories. So we come humbled and thankful that we have a table that demonstrates again and again the goodness of God, the price paid so that we could live free. And while that story is a hard story, it directs our attention towards God's sovereignty and his goodness, his care for his people, that we, in fact, are the new temple of God. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the worship team up, and I'm going to invite also the communion team to come forward and just stand on the two sides here. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would help us grasp the depth and the nature of what it means for us to be the new temple. That together we who are filled by your spirit are called to continue forward being people of peace and holiness. May we be humbled by this but also encourage that you, you really care about your church. You desire to protect it from deception, from lies. Lord, we need you. This, this church and your entire church, Lord, we could really use that presence, your protection and your guidance. Heavenly Father, as we come to this table, I ask that you would guide and direct our hearts, that we would confess to you the truth that is wrestling on in our hearts that, that maybe there's things that we need to bring to you and confess and surrender. Lord, we are thankful that we get to come to this table to receive your grace, that we get to remember your grace given to us as we practice this together. I would invite those who are helping with communion to come forward and just stand here on the sides with me. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. Let me just find my place here. There we go. Then the hour came. Jesus and his, his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. On the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke bread and he gave thanks to it saying, this is my body broken for you. Take this in remembrance of me. And then after the meal, he took the cup and he passed it around and he said, drink this cup. Um, do this in remembrance of me. Um, how this will work is we will, uh, I'm going to give these items to our people here, and then you can, whenever you're ready, make your way through these aisles to go forward. Take the bread, take the cup, and then you can find your way back to your seat, and then we will partake together. <laughs>